Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. So my name's Mike, uh, if I haven't met you, and along with my wife, Julia, we oversee the site with an amazing team. Uh, last week, she wasn't here, unfortunately, because we had just traveled in, uh, on Sunday morning. This week, she's not here because she's sick. So it's not my preaching, um, <laughs> I, I hope, I hope. So I've got the privilege today of kicking off a new series that we're doing called Signposts to Jesus, Signposts to Jesus. And uh, what we're going to do over the next seven weeks is delve deeply into the gospel of John. And we're going to look at seven signs that he outlines in that gospel that point to Jesus, who he is, what he's come to do. And uh, as we're near Christmas, it's actually an opportunity for us to ready our hearts for that season. It can so often uh, overwhelm us, overtake us. We feel swamped with uh, commercials and materialism and all sorts of pressures to be at different dinners and staff dues and events. And all of that happens, and it can be wonderful, and it's fine. But sometimes we actually forget why we're doing it all. And to have something that just leads us into that space, readies our hearts, helps us to think about what it means to actually enter the space thinking about Jesus. I think, can be helpful. So that's what we're going to do over the next seven weeks, starting from today, leading up towards that Advent Christmas season. Before we get into today's text, I want to ask an important question, just to make sure we're all really clear on this. What is the point of a sign? What is the point of a sign? Signs communicate really important messages quickly. If they don't, they're pretty useless. Who on a highway going at 70 miles an hour, if you're allowed to go at 70 miles an hour, uh, will stop to read, not stop, but will will read as they are driving uh, a series of sentences on a sideboard telling you what you must do in the next kilometer of your travels? Of course you're not going to do that. You need something that has minimal lettering and words, uh, visuals, quick messaging, so that you absorb what you need to absorb quickly uh, to do what you need to do. That's when a sign is working well. Occasionally, sign fails occur. I've got a few examples here of signs. The no signs. The what's not working. Okay, so we don't have the signs on the screen, unfortunately. (laughs) But I think the other sites potentially do have the signs. But we all know those signs. They're signs that potentially are, are meant to communicate something that actually failed to do that entirely. And what they give us instead are mixed messages, contradictions, or unintended meanings. But when signs work as they're supposed to, they point beyond themselves to something meaningful. They point beyond themselves to something meaningful, perhaps shared knowledge or destination that we are trying uh, to get to. So my experience of this is of traveling as a, as a youngster in South Africa, driving on the roads. Often you would drive as a family because you couldn't afford to fly. We had four kids, um, and we drove everywhere, it felt like. And one of those very old VW uh, kind of mini bus type things that you always felt a bit embarrassed driving in potentially because they never looked like they were in good shape. But there we were, driving all over South Africa on holiday. And uh, there was a time where we would eventually reach 
a kind of point that was close to our destination. And I knew that because the signs would suddenly change and they would point in the direction of George, which is a place in South Africa. And now what would be very strange to do is if I were to get out at that point and say, we've arrived, right? If I get out at the point of the sign and say, we have arrived, and did a little dance and said, holidays can begin, we're excited, let's open the fridge, let's get out the goods, let's go and do everything we came here to do, that would be a strange thing for us to do. Now, what, what we needed to do was to continue following the direction of the sign to the destination that it was pointing to, because we knew what awaited us. We were excited at the sign because of the destination that it was talking about. And uh, if the slide was working, I would show you the place that we were going to, which got us very excited, but hopefully it'll come up in a second. A sign does what it's supposed to when it points beyond itself. When it points beyond itself. The sign is not the destination, it points to the destination. Why am I telling you about all of this? Because John, who writes the Gospel of John, if you didn't know, organizes his gospel around various miracles of Jesus, which he calls signs. He calls them signs. He says this in chapter 20. So this is the very kind of second to last chapter of his gospel. He says this, verse 13, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus did lots of signs. And if John had recorded every single sign that Jesus had done, he wouldn't have been able to fit them in this book or any other book or many books. There were so many of them. So what John has done is he's carefully chosen particular signs that point to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. What are the significance of these signs? Well, D.A. Carson, he's a Bible commentator, he puts it like this. Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. So signs point us to Jesus and invite us to experience the life that only he can bring. That's what John is trying to do in his gospel. He's trying to say, look at Jesus. The things that he did point to who he is and what he's come to do. So look at him. Look what he's doing. What do they say about who he is? They invite us to perceive him again, to encounter him again. But also notice they're there to persuade us. The signs are there to persuade us. See, Christianity is not a blind faith that is a leap in the dark. It's actually based on something concrete. It's based on the concrete life of Jesus, his teaching, his acts, what he said, and what he did. And those ought to persuade us that there's a resonance of truth in who he is and what he's come to do. We're not leaping in the dark. We're looking at Jesus and we're saying, is he credible? Am I persuaded by what he said and came to do? Do I believe that he was raised from the dead? And what does that mean if it is true? Might it change my whole life? Faith is being willing to be led to the unexpected places, maybe even to Jesus himself. 
John chooses these signs for what they say about Jesus. And the goal, as I said, is to encounter them, to encounter Jesus himself. See, Jesus is alive and active. We're not singing today in the memory of someone who was great and who once lived. We're singing to someone who is currently alive. And as we read the book, it's the only book that you can read in the presence of the author all the time, any time, any place. Jesus himself is alive. And as we sing to him, as we speak to him, as we encounter beauty even potentially in life, we start to get pointed in the direction of him, the author of all of these things. So over the next seven weeks, we'll explore these seven signs, one a week with the same goal in mind, to encounter Christ together freshly. So this morning, first sign, Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus turns water into wine. Let me pray. There it is. Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you that we are not here in the memory of some great person, but in the presence of a living being. I ask that you would pour out your presence this morning, that you would encounter each and every one of us, wherever we may be on our spiritual journey this morning, whether we're questioning or seeking, whether we are convinced and have been for decades, or whether we knew, wherever we are, I ask that you would meet us this morning, and that in this sign we would see the very person of Jesus and what he's come to do. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so the sign we are reading today is from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So welcome to go there on your phones or Bibles if you brought them, uh, or it'll come up on the screen as well. John chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. On the third day... There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. So I want to give some context for what we have just read uh, this morning. And then I want to consider what the sign says about Jesus' purpose. So context and then what the sign says about Jesus' purpose, what he's come to do and how he's come to do it. 
So firstly, a bit of context and the significance of what we're reading about. So if you've never encountered the Gospel of John, it's an amazing gospel. I love, love, love this gospel. So I encourage you to get into it, to read it, see what it says about Jesus. It's phenomenal. He says a lot of incredible things about Jesus that none of the other gospels say necessarily, or at least don't say in the same way. And at the beginning of this gospel, John uses very lofty language to describe Jesus. We actually sang about it this morning. He's the word who was with God and who was God from the beginning. And following these opening verses, which would have been incredible for a first century Jew to say and to say of a person, we have a story of how John the Baptist met Jesus and led others to meet him as well. Each encounter that someone has with Jesus results in another title or testimony about Jesus' identity. So John loves the number seven in his gospel. You'll see it cropping up all the times. The seven signs that we're talking about, seven I am statements that Jesus makes. I'm the bread of life. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. Uh, He also has seven identity titles in his first chapter of the gospel. So they're going to come up just for you to see. I'm not going to go through all of them. But again, these are big statements about who Jesus is. So many of John's early readers must have been wondering, as we might when we read these, what kind of person is all of these things at once? Could Jesus really be the one we've been waiting for? Or will he be just another disappointment? So the first public act of Jesus comes with some pressure on it. We've just read all these things about him, and now it comes to meeting Jesus himself directly, and there's some pressure to see if he'll live up to all of that. Imagine you're a musician releasing an EP, or an entrepreneur launching a new brand, or an artist putting together your first exhibition. In each case, you're going to choose your public presentation very carefully, because it communicates a lot about who you are and your ability and what you are doing. So this is Jesus' big moment. After 30 years of seclusion in Nazareth, he's finally launching his messianic ministry. And it's what John calls the first of his signs, and through it, his glory is revealed. So what is this glory that he is revealing? It's a revelation of his identity for the first time, his identity and his purpose. So for the next while, what I'd like to talk about are two aspects of this purpose, what he's come to do and how he has come to do it. So firstly, what he has come to do. If this is Jesus' big moment, if this is the launch of the messianic ministry, a divine ministry, no less, why does he choose to do it by keeping the wine flowing at a wedding feast. Think about it. Isn't this too worldly for a divine mission? Good question. There's something in the sign that speaks to what he's come to do. What is it? To make sense of this, we need to understand wedding celebrations from the first century because they're quite different to how we do wedding celebrations today. Life was lived way more communally back then than individually, so weddings were public celebrations. 
marriage was more about the community than about the individuals, whereas today it feels a little bit more about the individuals than it does about the community. The more people invited, the better. The longer the guest list, the better. Also more pressure. So this means a wedding could last up to a week at least. The pantries and the cellars had to be stocked accordingly. And to run out of wine in a Middle Eastern honor-shame culture is worse than bad judgment. It's a social catastrophe. It reflects poorly on the married couple, the family, as well as the master of the banquet. So what is happening by Jesus stepping into the space and saving the celebrations and, and saving this uh, family from public shame? Well, the master of the banquet, which was also the chief steward that we read about, was tasked with keeping up the good time. Literally, his title means, in the original language, the director of entertainment. He was the director of entertainment. So some of us might quite enjoy that title. Um, feel free to take it, um, but you've got to live up to it. Wine was one of the most important parts of the celebration. Rabbis at the time actually equated wine with joy. So as one commentator put it, to run out of wine would almost have been the equivalent of admitting that neither the guests nor the bride and the groom were happy. The end of wine was essentially the end of the party. Joy is turned to sorrow. The MC has failed miserably in his responsibilities to direct the entertainment and keep the good time going. Just a quick side note, in case you're wondering what all this wine means. Wine was heavily diluted in Jesus' time. It wasn't easy to get drunk on wine. It wouldn't often have happened. Occasionally it did happen. We'll read that in the Bible. But uh, it was very, very diluted wine, just if anyone's worried. I'm just going to make that point. So by turning water into wine, it reveals that he is the true master of the banquet. He is the true Lord of the feast. He has come to ensure lasting festal joy. He alone has the transforming power. Do you know the language of the Bible used to describe the last day when God puts everything right? The prophet Isaiah puts it like this in Isaiah 25. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-matured wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-matured wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. See, the end of time, this time at the end of the age, when God puts everything right, is described in terms of a joy-filled feast. Could this have been in Jesus' mind when he is at this wedding in Cana? I think it's quite possible. See, in effect, what Jesus is saying when he's doing this, when he's performing the sign, is, I am the true Lord of the feast on that day. So I've come to bring the joy of my Father's kingdom today. This is why my first miracle is to set everyone laughing. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite books, when Samwise Gamgee is rescued from the fires of Mount Doom, he sees Gandalf alive. Spoiler, sorry if you haven't read the books. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. 
is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? See, Jesus' answer is yes. Everything sad will become untrue, and I'm here to ensure it. He is the true Lord of the feast. He has come to direct the entertainment, to keep the good time going, to bring the joy of his Father's kingdom today. So this is what he's come to bring. How does he come to do it? How does he do it? Here's the clue. It's in his response to his mother. I actually think this is a really powerful interaction. I don't know how you find it, this moment with Jesus and his mother. Throughout his life, Jesus had this incredibly sweet relationship with his mother. Right up until the end on on the cross, when he's dying, uh, the excruciating death by crucifixion, he says, Mother, here's your son, pointing to John. And John, here's your mother. And uh, he took Jesus' mother into his kiss. Powerful um, scenes from the Gospels that we don't always take in. Here's another one of those moments, a, a sweet interaction with his mother. Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour is not yet come. So we might think that title, again, woman, is a bit rough, but actually it's not. It was a title of respect in the ancient world, similar to ma'am or uh, lady today, uh, that we might use in English. Hard to translate it, but it's not condescending. It is actually a title of respect that he's giving, and he's saying, why are you involving me in this? He seems to say no, and then he seems to turn around and say yes. What is going on over here? Did his mom twist his arm to do something he didn't want to do? What is happening? What's going on here, some commentators say, is that this actually marks a new relationship with his mother. He doesn't call her mother. He calls her by this title of respect. And what he's essentially saying is, yes, I honor you and I respect you, but I will no longer follow simply what you ask me to do. I'm following my father's will. And if it's my father's will, I will do it. He's about to launch his ministry and he will only follow his heavenly father's will. So this hour that he talks about is really important in his ministry and in John's gospel. It's always a reference to Jesus' death on the cross. His hour is the reason he's come. It's the moment of his victorious death. So here's the question, another one. I'm asking you lots of questions today. Why does a simple request... To intervene in a social disaster, lead to Jesus, say, I'm not ready to die. Is Jesus just dramatic? Has he missed the point of the question? It's like, no, no, Jesus, let, let's help you. <laughs> let's ask the question again. Um, make sure you've understood what's going on. What, what is going on here? We need to remember the miracle is a sign of what he has come to do. So when Jesus makes the strange statement about his hour, he is thinking far ahead. He has gone far beyond his mother, the bride and the groom, and the whole wedding scene to what performing this sign will mean. See, Jesus knows that to truly turn shame into joy, he will have to fulfill his hour. He will need to die on the cross for the sins of the world. So his mother's request is is made innocently enough. It's It's an innocent request asking him to step in and to help and to intervene. But Jesus knows the path he has set on by performing the sign. He says, in effect, yes, mother, I can bring joy. 
I can bring joy in this situation, but I'm going to have to die to do it. So this is referred to by theologians as the self-substitution of God. Jesus, the righteous one, substitutes himself into the place of guilty humanity. Don't mistake this for a caricature of angry God and loving Jesus. That's not what's going on here. God just wants to pour out wrath on people, and Jesus is the kind of kind son who wants to save people. That, that's not what's going on here. There's one unified will in God. They all want the same thing. The Father sends the Son, and the Son wants to come. See, Jesus' death satisfies both God's love and his justice. Our only hope of true joy and cleansing from shame comes from God choosing to do something about it. It comes from God choosing to step in and to make things right. Dr. Edmund Clowney put it powerfully, what's happening to Jesus in this moment at the wedding feast. should come up on the screen, this quote. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. How do we sip the joy of the coming kingdom today? How do we do that? You may not feel any joy right now at all. And a talk on joy is just rubbing you up the wrong way, potentially. You may be in the deepest, darkest pit you've ever possibly been in right now. Perhaps your mental health, you can't get a grip on it. Perhaps your body is, is failing you and you're feeling the frailty of your physical health. Perhaps there's instability of relationships around you. What do you do? Well, the first thing we need to know is that Jesus empathizes. Jesus empathizes. Jesus knows what it is to experience these things. But secondly, we get to practice tasting of the future uh, feast now. The future feast now. We get to get serious about joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something we can practice. And practicing it today prepares us for the experience of it then. And we remember that it's the joy of the Lord. It's God's joy. It's not something we have to bubble up in ourselves. It's something that we get as we connect and relate to God. So to bring about, as I, as I conclude, actually, can I invite the bands up here and uh, at Battersea and Westside as I land? To bring about the eternal joy of God's kingdom and set the table for a wedding feast to top all wedding feasts, Jesus Christ will have to lay down his life. To give us joy, he will have to lose all of his and the Bible says that he was glad to do it. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So all of this is in the heart of Jesus at that first wedding in Cana in the first century. It's the sign that he's about to perform. This is why he's come. He's come to be the true Lord of the feast, to turn shame into joy to set things right, to bring joy back, to keep the joy flowing. And this is not trite joy, that's just happiness based on circumstances. This is the joy of God's kingdom breaking into our lives now, breaking into our circumstances now. 
It's something we can experience and it's something that we can practice now. This is the sign Jesus comes to perform. It's what he comes to do and how he's going to do it is to die, is to lose his joy on our behalf. Perhaps we need a fresh encounter of this Jesus again. The Jesus who brings joy into our lives. The Jesus who turns, turns shame into joy. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.